I'd like to talk about practice very specifically on, about mindfulness. Um, really beginning with talking about what is it to be mindful? What, it, what is this practice of being mindful that we're doing or attempting to do or is attempting to do us, we could say. And um, I saw a quote here that I thought was relevant from Marcel Proust who said the real voyage of discovery the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes but in having new eyes but in having new eyes and it's one of the ways I think about mindfulness and I think about practice is about change is about discovering something and it's not about discovering something far away. It's not about finding new landscapes. It's about discovering something here. And what's, what's really um, exciting about it, interesting about it, is that discovery is an endless discovery. That there's no end to the discovery when we have new eyes. When we have new eyes, everything is alive, everything is fresh, everything is real in an unstatic way, in an unsolidified way, in an unconcretized way. It means when we have new eyes, we're not living in the past. We're not living based on ideas from the past. We're not living based on our conditioning or our history. That there is a possibility to live a real life, uh, a life which we would say in Buddhism is the life of Dharma. Dharma meaning truth. A true life, an authentic life. And mindfulness is one of the key, maybe main tool for allowing new eyes, for allowing that freshness. Because it always calls for us to get here. And to get here is where the aliveness is, is where the freshness is, is where the reality is. There was um, there's a poem by uh, Ryokan, the Zen poet, something like this. He says, oh, every day I see the bamboo grove in front of my hut. I see the bamboo grove in front of my hut a thousand times, yet never tire of it. that kind of freshness, that kind of aliveness, we, we almost don't think it's possible. We almost think, oh no, no, we could never just see the bamboo freshly each time. Or we could never see the person sitting in front of us fresh each time, even though we've sat there you know, with them a hundred times or a thousand times. Mindfulness offers a possibility to begin to wake up. And waking up asks us a question, which is, what's actually happening? Where are we? What does it mean to wake up? Awakening asks us to question life, to question the habit that we see through, that we live with, that we 
get used to, that we feel comfortable with, that we get secure with. It asks us to question our security itself and says, is that really secure? Is the fact that the habit is cozy, is that real security? Is the fact that the familiar is comfy, is that true security, true refuge? And really, if you're not questioning life, and by questioning I don't mean doubting, I don't mean necessarily doubting yourself. I mean just questioning what's, what's the truth? Where's the Dharma here? Who am I? What's going on? If you're not questioning, you don't need to be here. I mean, you could come for the cake and the, you know, the tea and the, the good company. That's a nice thing. But really, you don't need to be here if you're not asking some kind of serious questions, but also questions that are fun and invigorating and enlivening. In fact, the questioning itself, the questioning itself has a number of qualities of Dharma within it. Just to begin asking questions begins to include the idea that, well, maybe we don't know everything which I hope everybody here knows that they don't know, right? <laughs> and that there's a lot to learn as a human being. And that maybe one of the key, um, um, key factors, key aspects, key, um, I don't have quite the right word, um, characteristics of being human is that we can learn forever. As long as we're alive, we can keep learning, we can keep growing, we can keep developing, we can keep maturing, we can keep expanding. It's beautiful about human beings. It doesn't matter what's happening. Our life can be hard or difficult. We can keep learning. Our bodies can begin to deteriorate, and they will, and we can keep learning. We can keep awakening. If we're asking questions, then there's a sense of curiosity, a sense of openness, a sense of interest, a sense of wonder. If the questions are alive, and they need, it needs to be alive for mindfulness to be alive, then we're not taking things for granted. We're not taking the known to be everything. We can appreciate the known. Use, the, use what we know without being limited by what we know. You've, uh, many of you have heard me say this. One of my favorite spiritual books is called Freedom from the Known by Krishnamurti. And I thought it was such a good title, I never read the book. <laughs> it's true. It's true. He just he nailed it. It was like, I never ha I, there was no need to read the book. He, you know, what, what else can you say? That's it. So, I saw Krishnamurti once. It's not exactly my style of teacher, but that was a great book title. You know, it, one of the beauties of mindfulness is that it doesn't take things for granted. It doesn't take this moment for granted. It doesn't take our experience for granted, even if we've had that experience many, many times. 
because if we're actually here, if we're actually here now, that experience is only alive now. The idea that we know it is an idea. The idea that it's the same as a previous experience is simply an idea. It may be similar and it may be you know, have similar characteristics and we could say, oh, this is sadness, I've been sad before. I mean, that's, that's true. But the actual aliveness of sadness, that's only happening now. The aliveness of being calm right now is only happening now. And when we, we actually um, um, are, are being disrespectful to reality, we're, we're dissing reality a little bit when we just clump it together with the past. We actually dull reality by making it something we've had rather than something that's alive here now. And so the qualities, the questioning bring a certain quality to the meditative arts and to contemplative life. And the questioning that I'm, the, the qualities of questioning that I'm positing to you aren't just intellectual, aren't just conceptual qualities. I'm not saying, oh, think about everything. More, more the sense of wonder and openness and interest and wanting to feel, what, what does sad feel like now? Rather than telling ourselves what sad is, let's see. Let's see what it's actually like. What is it actually like when it's here, now, alive? You know, what is come actually like? Rather than being a word that we place on an experience, let's use the word to move closer to the, to the direct experience. Direct experience. Also a very important term related to mindfulness. That for mindfulness to truly function, it means we're coming into contact with our direct experience. We keep um, penetrating the veils of conceptuality and, into, and, and mentalizing that cover our direct experience so that we come into contact with ourselves, with our aliveness, with our um, with, with the mystery of being alive, moment by moment by moment. And hopefully, as we develop the skills of the meditative arts, that this engagement starts to become very full, very open, very wholehearted. We can begin to learn to give ourselves to the practice and to practicing paying attention. And it will begin to give it us its rewards. It's not simply to be here in the moment. I mean, that's a, that's a great thing. But there are fruits, there are gifts, there is awakening itself. There is um, um, the maturing of the best of what it is for us to be human beings. And it's really a beautiful question about how do we mature the, our intelligence? How do we mature our creativity? How do we mature our, um, our intuition? How do we mature our sensitivity? How do we mature our power? How do we mature our um, uh, uh, 
heartfulness. Oddly enough, meditation is one of the great tools for ripening us as human beings. When I was first writing this talk, which was actually many years ago now, I had just been on the beach with my godson, who's probably now nine, and then he was a few years old, and I was remembering his birth, and he was premature, and um, my friend Miriam was in the hospital, and, and they were saying, don't let this baby be born, it's too soon. You know, I can't remember the actual timing, but by the doctor's, you know, figures, right? It was too soon. You know, it was not. It was not in their window. And they said, Don't, you know, you have to stay still. And we're, they gave her medication, and you know, whatever they do, whatever Western technology knows how to do to keep the baby from coming forward, it was doing it, and it works. And Miriam, who's done a lot of practice as well as her husband had done a lot of practice at some point she she was with him and a couple close friends and they meditated about the baby, about what to do because you know she has a certain, they have a certain value not to take so much medication and things like that and, and at some point she got it that it was okay if this baby's ready to come this baby will be okay and the doctors were saying, no, 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 I can't remember what it was, the lungs wouldn't work or some, something like that. And Miriam said, no, it's okay. And the doctors were saying, no, don't, don't do it. And she had enough capacity, she had enough strength, a lot based on her contemplative practice, to say, no, I, I, I'm ready to let this baby be born. And she did, and the baby was fine. It was premature and needed to be, you know, treated appropriately, but he was fine and he is fine. He's been fine. He's actually a great drummer, this kid. <laughs> and, it was, and it was beautiful to watch her strength and clarity and intuition in the face of the institution saying, no, no, no. And she knew better. She knew. How did she know that? And how was she able to trust herself in that way? Part of what that was, was the fruit of her practice. And life will present us with many conundrums, with many problems, with many difficulties, with many sufferings that we're going to have to face, that we've already faced, and there'll be more. Not because you're doing it wrong, or not because you're bad, or not even because you're making a mistake at all. It's just because you're human, and that's the nature of human life. That there's suffering, that there's difficulty, that our parents will age and get Alzheimer's or deteriorate in some way, or our friends will get mad at us and not talk to us, or people will get in car accidents, or the governments will do all kinds of stuff that we're not going to be happy with and all kinds of things will happen. We won't have the dreams that we've had won't come to fruition. Or who knows what? 
earthquake. We could have a major earthquake. How many of you felt the earthquake about 10 days ago? That was a good one, you know? You know, that one, that one stayed with you for 10 minutes, right? You know? But I mean, if a really big earthquake hit, we will have to deal with it, with that reality. What gives us the capacity? What will give us the strength and the clarity and the presence to respond appropriately? And of course, I'm, I'm being a little dramatic in what I'm saying, but it's the ordinary, the everyday. I'll read you a poem. It's a poem, we used to read it a lot in the Dharma, in the insight meditation culture. I, I haven't read it much in years, but it's, and people have heard it, but it's worth it. It's Rumi. He says, this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. This is a radical, this is seeing the world with new eyes. This is a radically different way to respond to what life presents us. That we could be open to it, that we could accept it, that we could see it not as something to keep out or to stop, but something that is our life at that moment and we can respond to, that we can have the intelligence and the kindness and the compassion and the creativity and the sensitivity and the strength and the power to respond to whatever comes tomorrow morning, whatever shows up at your door tomorrow morning. So mindfulness, and I have to say, I'm not a big fan of the word, the, 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 the word mindfulness. It could just as well be heartfulness. Not quite so, so accurate to say bodyfulness, but the three, I like all three, bodyfulness, heartfulness, mindfulness, because it's a totality of being, of presence, that mindfulness develops. That if, if one is developed more than the others, it gets imbalanced. You want to develop all three, that capacity to really get here, to get here in your body as a, as a being here on the earth, to let the heart be open and sensitive, and to let the, the, the mind be open and clear, knowing, let the intelligence function. Somewhere I was hearing the difference between mind and, intelli and intellect. There used to be a discrimination between the two. Mind is like the, more like a computer and intellect is what, um, what um, takes the information that the computer gives us and then responds to reality with it. So mindfulness um, provides a means for us to be the guardians of our experience. 
the guardians of our experience or the stewards of our experience. Um, that there's a way that then the experience that comes is not something we have to deny or push out or fix, but but we actually learn how to accept our experience and work with our experience without being bound to our experience. That if we can have all kinds of feelings, we can have a huge range of feelings, and yet we're not bound by our feelings. We can have all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of imaginings, all kinds of things, and we're not, we don't believe all our thoughts. We don't simply define ourselves by our thoughts or our feelings. We can have all kinds of body sensations, from the most pleasurable to the least pleasurable. And yet that's not what defines us, that there's a capacity of heart and mind to be present that allows us to work with whatever comes, good and bad, both, good and bad, both. And so mindfulness begins to mature the, the qualities of our intelligence and our creativity and our heartfulness so that we're not just in reaction or we're not just aversive or we're not just grasping or needing or wanting. But all those things can be here. We don't have to deny them. We don't have to create some perfect human being who, oh, I don't want anything or I don't ever feel aversive or I don't ever you know, get pissed off or I don't, you know, some idea of some perfect human that doesn't exist as far as I know but that there is a greater capacity, that we have a capacity that we haven't developed fully and that when that capacity develops, then we can work with all these other aspects of being a human being. And then part of mindfulness is really looking at the big questions of being a human being or not even being a human being. Let's not even get stuck with that identity. Right? I mean it's you know, it's kind of a nice conventional idea that we're human beings. But that's just an idea also, right? I hope you get that. <laughs> that really we're not even I, sh- I know I shouldn't go here, but it's coming <laughs> out. You know, even the idea that we're human beings is a conventional idea. If we really look in our direct experience, well, let, let me just say it this way. I want to encourage you to really look in your direct experience and see where that, where is that human being? What is a human being? Is there really a human being here? This is from Mary Oliver. She said, who made the world? Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one, one who has flung herself out of the grass and the one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. 
how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? This is a Dharma poem from Mary Oliver. Who made the world? What is this grasshopper? What is it? What is a human being? What is a Eugene or an Alice or a Bob or a Dan or a Phyllis? What is a man or a woman? What are we really? What is it to have consciousness and awareness? And these are not intellectual questions. These are questions that mindfulness will bring forward as we keep looking at what's actually here in the present moment. What is a breath? One of my favorite things is in practicing, especially long practice, like in a day long or a week long or a month long of practice, you know, of especially staying with the breath and the breath being quite a delicious object to stay with. At some point, I just say to myself, oh, I don't know what a breath is. And then I see how true that is. Breath is just a word. The actual experience of a breath is the most magical thing in the world. Well, what's a sound? Right? You're all listening right now to my voice. What's a sound? Not as an idea, but listen. What is it? You know, and then of course it's the fact that we think we're communicating with these sounds. Right? I mean, we are a little bit, I hope. But we could, you know, I could do that. La la, bana, wanda, jana. Nada, chan, achuna. La la la, zoom. You kind of understand what I'm saying there. We'd have to do it more, we'd repeat it more, and you'd get the feel of it. But they're just sounds. But something's communicated here. Something's alive. So something's alive, not just in each of us, but something's alive between us. This is also the Dharma. This is why Sangha, or community, is so powerful, because there's something we share. And actually, even in a more real way, more accurate way, it's something we are the same expression of. It's not even that we share it. We are it. We are the same arising of consciousness that can awaken each of us. And Mary understands how precious this life is, this being is. And of course, this being means each being here. There's actually not one being more precious than another here. That the preciousness is the life itself, the amazing life which appears, but as she says, all too quickly is gone. Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? 
Almost no matter how long it's been here, when it dies, it's too soon. Because of its preciousness, because of its uniqueness, really, and it's because of our uniqueness, Mary Oliver's not afraid to ask the big questions and she understands what's needed to answer them, right? She said, she says, I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. I do know how to pay attention. Mindfulness teaches us how to pay attention. It's really not taught well, attention. It's not taught in schools well. You're told to concentrate in a kind of tense way. We're told to do that. Or you better pay attention or you're going to get in trouble. I'm going to, I'm going to come watch your meditation. If you don't pay attention, I'm going to come, right? There's that whole attitude. You better, don't laugh, you better pay attention. Right? And of course, it's the one way that mindfulness is taught is simply about attention. There's a story of um, EQ, Zen rogue monk. Uh, somebody wanted to buy a calligraphy from him. And so he did his calligraphy and said, attention. And the guy said, wait, I gave you a lot of money. Can't you make it a little longer? Right? He wanted the Dharma and he wanted a calligraphy. And he said, I'll give you more money. He gave him some more money. And he gave him the second calligraphy. It said, attention, attention. <laughs> and he said, come on, I gave you all this money. And he gave him more money. And he, and he gave him another calligraphy. Attention, attention, attention. That that's the teaching. Pay attention. Now, I, when I say pay attention, there's something I want to imply in that. Don't get tense. I didn't say pay attention in that way. Pay attention. Don't get tense. Actually, true contemplative attention is totally relaxed, is very relaxed, is very open, is very easy. It's actually learning how to settle back in, using the skills of the meditative process to settle back in to the natural awakeness of our mind, to the natural awakeness. Let's see if I can find this uh, and pull it out. The everyday practice of meditation is simply to develop a complete, carefree acceptance and openness to all situations without limit. We should realize openness as the playground of our emotions and relate to people without artificiality, manipulation, or strategy. We have the possibility to experience everything totally, never withdrawing into ourselves as a marmot hides in its hole. The practice releases tremendous energy, which is usually constricted. That there is a possibility to begin to relax 
into the natural openness, wakefulness of our heart and mind. When it's not obscured by the past, when it's not covered by our conditioning and our history and our beliefs and our ideas and our imaginings and our thoughts and everything that happened yesterday and everything we have to do tomorrow and all that stuff that drives us crazy. That we can begin to get here So attention is very important. Attention without tension. Attention without tension. Wakefulness without tension. Hearness without tension. And of course, that means being aware, being awake to when we're feeling tense. Right? Let me just be clear. It's not like, oh, I'm never going to be tense and so I can't be tense. No, we're going to get tense and we're going to be aware of that. And there is something, I don't know how to exactly, um, I don't know how to exactly explain the real power of mindfulness to allow things to release. That if you, there is this amazing quality of mindfulness that when you really get present with something, where there's no pushing it away, when you're totally permeable to your experience of tension, the tension starts to relax or it becomes less tense or even if it's still tense, it doesn't have the same quality of holding. And I could say this many, many ways, but only if you practice will you discover this. Only if you're willing to sit with what's difficult will you be able to find the freedom that is possible for us as human beings no matter what's happening in our life. And I'm going to read you something. I'm actually going to jump ahead here because we're running out of time. This was a really inspiring... I usually don't read really long things, but I'm going to read this. It's from a woman named Alison Wright. It was from Yoga Journal a few months ago. Alison Wright, who is a photographer, done a lot of traveling, a lot of good work. And she, um, she's writing this, she's, she'd just been circumnambulating Mount Kailash, walking around, it's a, it's a pilgrimage walk that's done by Tibetan Buddhists around the holiest mountain in Tibet, Mount Kailash. And she said, And she says, four years and 20 surgeries before my Kailash journey, a logging truck screeched around a corner on a remote Laotian jungle road and slammed into the bus I was riding. My left arm was shredded to the bone as it smashed through the window. My back, pelvis, tailbone and ribs snapped immediately. My spleen was sliced in half and my heart, stomach, and intestines were ripped out of place and pushed up into my shoulder. With my lungs collapsed and my diaphragm punctured, I could barely breathe. I was bleeding to death inside and out, and it would be more than 14 hours before I received real medical care. 
a practicing Buddhist, I had been headed to a meditation retreat in India where I had planned to sit for three silent weeks. Instead, I lay crushed and bleeding at the side of the road. Struggling to draw in air, I imagined each breath to be my last. I imagined each breath to be my last. Breathing in, breathing out, consciously willing myself not to die, I concentrated on the life force fighting its way into my lungs. Along with my breath, pain became my anchor. Pain became my anchor. As long as I could feel it, I knew I was alive. I thought back to the hours I had sat in meditation, fixated on the sensation of my legs falling asleep. And I just have to add, personally, I spent probably 15 years sitting on the cushion and my legs fell asleep every time I sat on a cushion until I ended up, mostly I sit on a chair these days. And, you know, people would say, well, why, do you, why would you do that? Well, and and I, I knew you learn how to sit with discomfort. And it's not, a, it's not that it's comfortable, but you learn how to be okay with discomfort. You learn how to be okay with actually whatever comes when you're sitting. And that skill, that's a skill that we can all develop that will serve us throughout our whole life. And she's just giving a beautiful example of it, very dramatic example. She says, that discomfort could hardly compare to the torment from my injuries, but I discovered that meditating could still help me focus and remain alert, and I'm convinced it saved my life. I managed to calm myself, slowing my heart rate and the bleeding, and I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. In fact, I never felt so aware, so clear-headed, and completely in the present moment. Now, maybe if we have an accident, that's how it'll be for us. But my sense is it's a better bet if you practice first. Really, and it's, it's practice now before something happens. Because something will happen. You can be assured of it. Even if it's just, you're just going to die, which is a totally healthy, normal thing for all human beings to do. But often it's not so simple, especially given our age, our, our time. Meaning, like I said, Kitty Sarrow's father's dying. Well, here's, here's what happened. They were with him in uh, Tennessee and having dinner, and he collapsed. And he collapsed, and he's 91. He collapsed, and he's on the floor of the restaurant. And I talked to Tanisara, and she said, oh, you could just see the life force going out of him. You could just see it go. And, and she said, but the hospital was two minutes away, and they called the hospital, and they came in a minute, and they bumped his heart, they shocked his heart, and they got him alive again. So now he's in intensive care, like for the past 10 days. You know, in other times, he would have gone on the floor and he would have died, and he's 91, and it's, it's not even, you know, it's sad, you miss him, but, I mean, 91, I mean, it's not gonna, you're not going to live much more than that. It's not, it's not a mistake. It's not even really a problem. It's just sad because you love the person. But now it's a whole complicated thing because he's alive 
because of our technology. So partly I'm hoping to encourage you to practice now, here, whenever you can, with whatever comes. But use your time. Learn, the, really where I want to start with this you know, haphazard series on mindfulness is to say you have to practice and that it will dev- give you its strengths, it will give you its fruits, it will, it will bear fruit, it will give you the, it will develop capacities that if they're not developed, they may not be there when you need them. They may not be there when you need them. And I'll, I'll read you a little more because it's, it's pretty amazing what happened to her. There were a number of hours passed, she says, six more hours, and then she was, she was put on the floor of a little clinic, which was basically nothing. You know, it was a room that she got put in. She says, six hours passed, no more help arrived. Opening my eyes, I was surprised to see that darkness had fallen. That's when I became convinced I was going to die. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me, a bone-deep peace I could have never imagined. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. So now you're hearing not just the skills that the Dharma can provide, but the realization that the Dharma offers. What does it mean to be awake? What does it mean to be free of attachment, free from fear? What does it mean to be free from suffering? Partly it means we see the perfection of reality, the perfection of each moment, which our conceptual mind, no, 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 this is not perfect, and I don't have the partner I want, and I still want an iPod, and I haven't got you know, the new iPhone, it's not perfect, and not even me, the world, it's a mess, and there's wars and everything. All that's true, there's problems, all that's true. But there may be even more for us to discover. There may be more for us to discover. Don't let the newspapers, don't let psychology, don't let history determine reality. All of that stuff is helpful or important, but actually there may be more to reality than we can even imagine. She said, She said, a perfect calm enveloped me, a bone-deep peace I could have never imagined, and there was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. In that moment, I felt my spiritual beliefs transform into undeniable experiences. Buddhism had taught me the concept of interbeing, the idea that the universe is a seamless mesh in which every action ripples across the whole fabric of space and time. As I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other. I realized that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. 
A warm light of unconditional love encompassed me and I no longer felt alone. There is no limit to what's possible for us. There's no limit to the maturation of human consciousness. It's why we have examples like the Buddha or Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion. These are possibilities for us as human beings. And as one of my teachers said, uh, the lack of awakening is partly a failure of imagination. We don't believe, we don't actually believe it's possible for us. And it is possible for us. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.